Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher uh, or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Now, I do try and keep this show positive. I've talked about that several times in the last couple of weeks uh, because I feel like we kind of all need it these days. Um, But I do actually want to take a minute to report on something and to just share hopefully with you uh, my upset and hopefully you are also upset about this um, or will be if you haven't heard about it yet. Um, And this is about NASA's decision to cancel the first all-female spacewalk because it failed to supply the correct size of spacesuit for both women in order to perform a spacewalk. Now, of course, NASA has tried to clarify that there are two spacesuits available. Of course there are. Um, But only one is configured properly for a spacewalk. NASA has suggested that it's it's better to stay on schedule by subbing in a male than to take the time to configure the suit in order to continue on the mission as it should have been. Because Christina Coe had been the first scheduled, she will conduct the walk with male astronaut Nick Haig, uh, and Anne McLean will have to stay behind. NASA stated that... Coe has been scheduled to conduct this spacewalk with astronaut McLean in what would have been the first all-female spacewalk. However, after consulting with McLean and Haig following the first spacewalk, mission managers decided to adjust the assignments, due in part to spacesuit availability on the station. McLean learned during her first spacewalk that a medium-sized hard upper torso Essentially, the shirt of the spacesuit fits her best because only one medium-sized torso can be made ready by Friday, March 29th. Co will wear it. Now, this isn't the first time that NASA has had this issue. A 2003 study found that eight out of 25 female astronauts could not fit in the available spacesuits at the time. And of course, the men had no such issues. This again prevented women from being able to do spacewalks. And it seems that more than 15 years later, they are still having the same exact issue. And, you know, this would have been such a symbolic win for women in a field where women actually have been able to make achievements despite the obvious roadblocks. There actually are a lot of women in NASA and in, you know, both NASA on the ground and there are a lot of female astronauts. And this is one of the places where they actually really have been able to excel. And it's just so incredibly frustrating to see this sort of thing happen. Um, I'm just, I'm very upset. Um, And so uh, Co noted that I hope that I can be an example to people that might not have someone to look at as a mentor, that it doesn't matter where you come from or what examples there might be around you. You can actually achieve whatever you're passionate about. And so, yeah, that was her statement 
prior to, you know, during the, the buildup to this, because, you know, of how amazing it is to be able to have these women out there doing this. And now it just seems to ring hollow. Um, you know, it doesn't detract from the fact that they are amazing. And, you know, they're both astronauts. That's so incredible. Um, but it's just very frustrating. And it comes on the heels of a February study, which reported on an eight-year longitudinal sample of STEM professionals, um, so that is science, technology, engineering, and medicine, uh, in the United States. And it found that for new mothers, there was a major level of attrition. After four to seven years, or four to seven years after the birth or adoption of a first child, 43% of women had left a full-time STEM job compared to just 23% of new fathers. Now, of course, some of this is explainable by personal choice. Some women just decide that they want to spend more time with their children, but there are definitely systematic reasons for why women leave the field of STEM after they become new mothers. And I know that this is this is something that is very hard to deal with for a lot of women. And it is very frustrating because, you know, there's so many quote unquote good reasons why women should be shut out if they leave the workforce for times because you haven't kept up with, you know, the research you, you know, there could be any million miles of excuses as to why uh, you know, this isn't a personal thing, that it isn't meant to actually just be punitive towards women. It's just the way that things are. Um, but there are so many ways that we could actually support uh, women in order to keep them in these fields, because we know, again, as we were just talking, that basically, male is still considered the default. And the reason for that is that so many of the people in science, technology, engineering, and math are men. <laughs> and they are the ones who are building things. They are the ones who are designing things. And they default to male. And so we are doing a great disservice to the other half of the population of the planet uh, when we don't fight against that status quo. All right. So that's all for the for the being upset for tonight. Let's let's move on to uh, more interesting and fun and weird news uh, that is not absolutely infuriating. I'm trying very hard to sort of keep my composure, but I was actually very furious about this when I first read it. Okay. So again, let's move on. So. One of the most intriguing geological times in the history of the Earth was the Cambrian. Cambrian organisms are, from our perspective at least, some of the weirdest and wild that have ever existed. So it is very exciting to know that a new 518 million year old fossil site has been unearthed in the Yangtze Gorge area of southern China. The King Jiang biota is being compared to the Burgish Shale in British Columbia and the Cheng Jiang fossil site in Yunnan province. And those are basically considered the most famous and important fossil beds discovered in the 20th century. Um, 
the uh, in the 19th century, it was the um, quarry in Germany that I can't think of right now, the name of it where Archaeopteryx was found. But the 20th century, it was the Burgess Shale and um, Chengjiang. And so um, the area where this was discovered, uh, it was discovered by a team of Chinese researchers along with Robert Gaines, a National Science Foundation funded researcher from Pomona, 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 <laughs> sorry about that, uh, college, who was actually the only American on the team. And so the King Zhang fossils contain not only a high amount of diversity, but also feature near pristine preservation of soft bodied organisms, including juvenile or larval forms, arthropod and worm cuticles and jellyfish with soft tissues such as eyes, gills and guts being preserved. And so far, over 4,000 specimens have been collected, with 101 species being identified. 53 of these species are things that science has yet to describe or name. This finding enriches our view of the early animal world and offers us really remarkable views on the simplest animals, said Gaines. One of the most incredible things about this finding is the pristine condition of many of those specimens, fossils that haven't been substantially affected by impacts of time, and in them you can clearly see soft tissues like eyes, tentacles, and gills. Now, what's more, the findings represent a substantively different early Cambrian ecosystem from that of the Chengjiang biota. And so basically, they are different um, kinds of animals because they were from a different kind of uh, ecosystem. So even though they're both sort of in China, those two places originally had very different um, ecosystems. So that is very exciting. So it's not just sort of more of what they already had. It's new and different things. And what's really interesting um, is that the site was actually found almost by mistake. Uh, the Lagerstätte, uh, which is the geological term for a deposit of extraordinarily well-preserved fossils, uh, was discovered by the team who were working in the mountains. And so they basically had come down to the banks of the Dan Shui River in Hubei province, where they discovered rocks that had a distinctive pinstriped pattern, which was a telltale sign that layers of mud had been rapidly deposited by ancient storms, which was much like the Chengjiang site. Now, Gaines had actually already been a part of an expedition that had found a new Burgess Shale site in Canada's Kootenay National Park back in 2014. He actually started working with the Chinese team in 2016 and made his first visit to Qingjiang in 2017. I was invited to help them understand the discovery and contribute my knowledge, said Gaines, who describes being approached by his colleague Jingliang Zhang at a conference in Australia. He pulled out a pristine chunk of rock, black with striping striking gray stripes. And when he said where they found it, I didn't believe him at first, said Gaines. I was in disbelief at the magnitude of such a discovery. And so that is super, super exciting. 
um, when it comes to fossilization, uh, sort of mudslides are your best friend. <laughs> um, so, you know, when you have sort of uh, torrential downpours and you have mudslides that cover things, uh, that is the best way to get these kinds of uh, amazing fossils. So even though today we think of mudslides as being extremely bad news, and they are for, you know, humans uh, and anything that gets caught in them, they're really amazing uh, for anthropologists and uh, paleontologists, uh, because humans do also, uh, ancient humans did also get caught in them. So uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so what's really interesting is, of course, this Cambrian period. And so to find more of these um, Cambrian examples is very cool, because, again, Cambrian the Cambrian is just some of the weirdest and most interesting creatures that have ever evolved on the planet. Uh, one of the most notable creatures from that time is a tiny spiky worm with legs like noodles uh, named Hallucinogenia. It actually took decades of research for science scientists to figure out which side of the creature was the head. <laughs> Another is the large predatory organism from the genus Anomalocaris, which would have been more than three feet long and lived in shallow oceans. It had large eyes on basically on stalks on the sides of its uh, head that would have helped it to be the first apex predator. When you look at the animal, it has these really gnarly looking grasping claws at the top of its head for grasping onto its prey. Uh, John Patterson of the University of New England in Australia said, it used these grasping claws at the front to shove its prey into its circular month, mouth, which is also fairly fearsome looking. And so these animals are so weird that when Harry Whittington, a British paleontologist, first showed off his reconstruction of the five-eyed invertebrate Opabinia, which featured a claw dangling from the end of a long, flexible face nozzle, his fellow paleontologist burst out laughing at a conference back in the 1970s. He suspected that the animal used that appendage to dig in the mud of the seafloor for food. And so that is one of the big things that led sort of to this Cambrian explosion. Of course, we know now it was a little bit less of an explosion that there were, uh, you know, these animals didn't just sort of poof into existence. There was, like everything else, an evolutionary chain. It's just that, again, when you're going from single-celled organisms that had dominated for billions of years to creatures that are more complex uh, and begin to predate on those single-celled organisms, those first organisms were also very uh, soft-bodied, and they didn't preserve very well, but we have found more and better organisms, um, more and better fossils as time has gone on. And so those first creatures that began to sort of uh, become more complex and to predate on uh, single-celled organisms would have been confined to the seafloor, unable to move into other areas of the ocean. That was until 541 million years ago, when worm-like animals began to develop the first simple muscles. 
That is what really changed the whole game. Javier Ortega Hernandez, an invertebrate paleontologist and assistant professor of of organismic and evolutionary biology at Harvard University, uh, told Live Science. So the power to move actually helped those worms to be able to burrow down into the seafloor. And with that actually brought oxygen. (laughs) And all of a sudden, bam, Ortega Hernandez notes, we have these marine sediments, which are just teeming with activity and life. And this opened up a world of different ecosystems and allowed evolution to flourish with a huge amount of diversity with animals such as mollusks and arthropods first developing. Now, many organisms became predators, and so there was a boom in different body types with both offensive and defensive uh, sort of body designs. Many of these arthropods had almost teeth-like structures in the legs that they used for chewing on each other, and that started to become a real issue uh, for their victims, of course, said Ortega Hernandez. And while many of these early attempts at multicellular life died out during the transition to the Ordovician, uh, animals such as sponges, jellyfish, and anemones actually still resemble their ancient Cambrian forerunners. Um, Though there are lots of weird things from the Cambrian that did not uh, survive. Definitely uh, always worth a look of... uh, I will try and find a um, picture gallery or something to post on the Facebook page of Cambrian, uh, you know, artist renderings of Cambrian uh, critters. (laughs) And uh, as for hallucinogenia, Ortega Hernandez has actually found evidence that it is related to modern day velvet worms. And they're weird, too. Um, So also velvet worms, very weird. So not at all surprising that they might be related to hallucinogenia. Okay, so let us move on now and complete completely changed subjects. (laughs) And uh, so I wanted to move to the realm of archaeology. And so uh, one of the cool things that happened this month was that archaeologists discovered a ship that had been previously considered to be, uh, you know, hadn't, hadn't, ever been found before. It was basically, uh, it had been described by one of the most famous ancients, uh, the Greek historian Herodotus, but no extant examples of it had ever been found. And so, you know, it was a pretty good uh, description. He spent a full 23 lines of his Historia describing uh, a type of ship called a Barris, which he'd seen being constructed during his travels to Egypt in 450 BCE. Now, uh, he went into pretty uh, intense detail, which is why, you know, I, I hesitate to say that we once thought it was a fantasy because, you know, I mean, it was probably a real thing. We just never found one. And so he noted that it was a long barge with a single rudder, which passed through a hole in the keel and had a mast made of acacia wood with sails made from papyrus. Now, again, the boat remained a mere description until very recently. Back in 2000, the ancient Egyptian port city of Thonis 
Heraklion was discovered sunken below the waves of the Western Mediterranean. And along with parts of the port city were over 70 sunken vessels that dated from between the 8th and 2nd centuries BCE. And it turns out that one of those ships matched the description of the Barris. It wasn't until we discovered this wreck that we realized Herodotus was right. Damien Robinson, the director of Oxford University's Center for Maritime Archaeology, told The Guardian, what Herodotus described was what we were looking at. Herodotus had specifically noted uh, how the ship was constructed. He said that the builders cut planks two cubits long, which is about 40 inches, uh, and arranged them like bricks. On the strong and long tenons, they inserted two cubit planks. When they had built their ship in this way, they stretched beams over them. They obturate, which is block up, uh, the seams from within with papyrus. And so it was definitely quite a surprise when archaeologists came across a vessel uh, which had a previously unknown construction technique with thick planks held together with smaller pieces of wood. <laughs> Herodotus describes the boats as having long internal ribs. Nobody really knew what that meant. That structure has never been seen archaeologically before, Robinson explained. Then we discovered this form of construction on this particular boat, and it is ex it is absolutely and it absolutely is what Herodotus had been saying. And so the vessel, which is referred to as Ship Seventeen, would originally have measured up to ninety two feet, uh, which is a decent ship, uh, even for today, but especially for back then. And uh, this particular one most likely originated from the 6th century BCE, uh, but would have been sank somewhere in the first half of the 5th century uh, after having been reused as a sort of floating jetty uh, towards the end of its career. And so such a ship would have been used to transport goods such as fish, stones, and even troops along the Nile River. The one from Thonis Heraklion was also likely involved in moving goods to and from the Emporium, Robinson noted. Barris would have moved imports from the Greek and Persian worlds further down the Nile to the cities of the valley, and they would have also brought Egyptian goods like grain or natron, which is salt, up to the port for export. And so Alexander Belov, an archaeologist and shipwreck specialist, along with maritime archaeologist Frank Gaudio, have actually been studying the ships found in the sunken harbor. Belov notes that the Barris was in the tradition of Egyptian and Mediterranean shipbuilding, and after the barges began to fall apart, they would have been incorporated into other maritime infrastructures at the port. And so while it is great to have located such a ship, uh, I do want to get into one thing uh, because I did hear a little bit about this at some point uh, in sort of reading about these things. And I'm just, just want to, I just want to remind people that just because we do occasionally find things that have only been described in ancient writings, it still doesn't mean that other things are out there. Uh, so, you know, for instance, 
Atlantis. Um, you know, I, I've definitely heard the, oh, well, what else did the ancients get right every time a story like this comes up? Um, but of course, my answer is usually probably a lot of things, um, but not everything. And uh, places like Atlantis were you know, Atlantis was absolutely just an allegory. It was not meant to be a real place. Uh, really, people need to just let that go. <laughs> um, it's great for, you know, uh, Marvel movies and things like that, but definitely not for uh, actual real life. Okay, so we are going to take a break because it is that time. And then we will come back and talk about another interesting submarine find. So hang on for some um, PSAs and some uh, show promos, and we'll be back in a minute. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. My name is Amanda Messer. I'm 17 years old, and I'm a student from Turner's Falls High School. Billboard bodies. Does anybody really look like that? Someone could be flipping through a magazine, looking at that pretty girl or that buffed-out guy, then go gag themselves. We need to love our looks for what they are, other than what people say they need to be. People can have beauty no matter what they look like. Beauty only comes from the, from the heart, soul, and mind. Most magazines emphasize the outside when it's the inside that really matters. And change in society would be most ideal for everyone. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Drum and bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. 
We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10, Saturday nights. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yousef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. Okay, we are back. And we are, like I said, going to talk about another uh, discovery underneath the uh, waves. And so this time it is researchers who have found, or I should say, uh, submarine archaeologists, which is a very cool thing, uh, have found the oldest extant example of a mariner's astrolabe. And so the leaded gunmetal disc with iconic Portuguese markings was recovered from the Sodre shipwreck site in uh, El Halalalia, Oman, uh, in Oman. <laughs> and um, so the disc was confirmed to have been an astrolabe because digital measurements of markings on the limb of the artifact artifacts upper right quadrant showed them to be close to a five degree angle. Now, marine astrolabs are actually some of the rarest and most sought after artifacts from the early history of marine exploration. And so only 104 examples are known to exist in the world. They were first used on a Portuguese voyage down the west coast of Africa in 1481. They're so rare, in fact, that uh, each find is added to a central register that records their vital measurements and characteristics and tracks their location. Uh, it's maintained by the UK's National Maritime Museum at Greenwich. Uh, and so the Sadre Astrolab was originally found in 2014 during excavations at the wreck site of a Portuguese armada ship that was part of Vasco da Gama's second voyage to India between 1502 and 1503. The disc measures seven inches and was made between 1496 and 1501. And it is unique, which is very cool. It's the only solid disc type astrolabe with a verifiable provenance and the only one yet found to sport national symbols. It actually has the royal coat of arms of Portugal right on it. It helps fill in the gaps in the transition between the previously used planispheric astrolabe and the open wheel type that came into use sometime before 1517. And so a team from the University of Warwick in England traveled to Muscat, Oman in November of 2016 to collect laser scans of the most important artifacts recovered from the expedition. They used a portable laser scanner to create a 3D virtual model of the astrolabe. 
they were able to use to show that a series of 18 scale marks at uniform intervals of five degrees were present along, again, the limb of the disk. And so this confirms that it would have been employed as an astrolabe. And so basically, astrolabs use, are able to help you navigate using the stars. So you kind of uh, you line up the astrolabe with a star, and then you can figure out where you are based on that. Um, and so that's why you have those ticks of five degrees. And so um, the find has now been written up in the International Journal of Nautical Archaeology. Uh, again, totally a fun thing to probably read if you're a dork like I am, <laughs> and has been entered into the Astrolab registry as the earliest known example. So that is very cool. And, you know, this is an important part of the early history of, uh, you know, that nautical exploration. Um, the Portuguese were very influential. Uh, they were some of the, you know, earliest adopters of uh, the trireme ship, which was a much more maneuverable ship. And, um, you know, they just really started the whole, uh, you know, <laughs> they started kind of the entire, um, you know, mercantile and unfortunately, eventually colonial um, or colonizational uh, movement of Europe throughout the world. And um, so, yeah, uh, definitely, you know, little of column A, little of column B when it comes to these sorts of things where, you know, these are really cool things that they developed and they allowed people to go further and faster and, you know, to find all of these new places. Unfortunately, what they did when they found those new places was not so great. Um, so, yeah, that's a little problematic. Um, but nothing that we can do about that at this point, uh, for the most part, at least the you and I's of the world. Okay. Again, let's switch gears and talk about something completely different. <laughs> it turns out, this is a really weird one. Um, this is really fascinating. Uh, it turns out that people in the United States have a tendency to set their, th their thermostats to mimic natural environmental conditions in Africa. So a team of researchers from the North Carolina State University installed sensors in homes across the United States. Now, the original research question for the group was basically they wanted to learn about how indoor climates affect organisms that inhabit human spaces and, you know, are not humans. So, for instance, microbes, insects, rodents, all the things that kind of live with us, uh, even if we may not want them to, um, in the case of many of those things, um, having... <laughs> I had a uh, recent, I was recently at someone's house and they, they found a rodent in their, uh, in their, um, one of their home spaces and they were not pleased. <laughs> they were not pleased in the least. Um, so in order to explore that question, they asked people in 37 homes across the U.S. to set up a sensing device in their home, which took temperature and humidity readings every hour for a year. And so when they looked at the data, they found that the temperature and humidity, uh, when averaged out, was most common 
that was most common in the homes over the year closely matched that which is found in Kenya uh, and other East African countries. And of course, this is one of the places where it's believed that uh, humans first evolved. So um, actual humans, homo sapiens, uh, that's one of the places where we have a lot of uh, early homo uh, remains. So the researchers suggest that modern humans are attempting to stimulate the climate they were exposed to during the period when they had no control of, over the weather, and that this climactic re region is still the most comfortable for humans, uh, despite the fact that we've basically settled the rest of the world. And so what's interesting about this, too, is that the researchers noted that despite humans spending a large amount of time in indoor spaces, the relationship between humans and climate in the ecological realm of the home actually remains poorly studied, especially when it comes to ecology and the evolution of humans and the species that live alongside them. Uh, or us, I should say. Uh, the researchers noted this that Partially, this is due to a lack of indoor climate data across seasons for occupied homes. Basically, unless you have something like this where you ask someone to put a sensor in and to then be able to relay that information back to you, researchers don't really have that data. Um, you know, no one's keeping a watch on how people uh, set their thermostats. So unless you have that kind of data, you can't make any assumptions from it. They also note that those who study indoor environmental quality are interested more in creating spaces that promote comfort and productivity rather than studying them from an ecological or evolutionary context. Um, so, you know, they're more concerned with how can we make this better rather than, you know, why is this like this or how does this pertain to evolution? <laughs> and uh, what they found also has interesting implications. First, they note that climates we prefer have strong effects on global energy usage and how that usage varies geographically. So for instance, those in Nor northern climes have to spend a lot more energy to recreate conditions in East Africa uh, than those actually, for instance, in East Africa. <laughs> Um, and it also suggests that in constructing our homes and indoor climates in a particular way, we are actually favoring the subset of species that prefer those same client climates that we do. And so that could have interesting implications. Now, on a state-by-state -state basis, most countries lined up with Angola, Ethiopia, or Namibia. Uh, Massachusetts, actually, the person in Massachusetts uh, was with Angola. Um, interestingly, Michigan and Arizona shared a climate that more closely resembled Australia, and less surprisingly, Hawaii shared a climate with Brazil. Uh, both are kind of known for their sort of rainforesty climate. Um, so even though we may have evolved and moved out of East Africa, apparently we still hold it in our bodies as an ideal. <laughs> So yeah, that's very, it's very weird. Uh, I, I told you it was going to be a weird one. <laughs> okay, so 
Now let's move on and talk about another woman with an odd characteristic that might be important to medicine, that hopefully is going to be important to medicine. Uh, So last week, uh, we talked about the woman who can smell Parkinson's disease. Uh, But this week, we have a woman with a quote unquote mutant gene uh, who feels basically no pain, uh, but who also, this is the important part, heals without scarring. And so Joe Cameron, a 71-year-old Scottish pensioner, apparently doesn't feel pain and has rather superhuman healing abilities uh, due to what was previously what, what was a previously unknown genetic mutation. And so she first came to researchers' attention at uh, age 65 when she went in to see a doctor about her hip problem. The doctor found that her hip was severely arthritic and needed replacing. Now, for a normal person, the pain would have been excruciating. But, you know, Joe didn't have any issues. (laughs) Uh, Researchers also noted that she reported numerous burns and cuts without pain, often smelling her burning flesh before noticing any injury. And these wounds healed quickly with little or no residual scar. Now, she also notes that she could eat scotch bonnet chilies, quote, without any discomfort, but a short-lasting, pleasant glow in her mouth. Uh, She said, I had no idea until a few years ago that there was anything that unusual, unusual about how little pain I feel. I just thought it was normal, Ms. Cameron said. And so pain geneticists at the University College in London and the University of Oxford found two mutations of interest, one in a gene called FAAH, or fatty acid amide hydrolase. And so this gene is well known to pain researchers. It's part of the body's endocannabinoid system, uh, which is in turn part of the central nervous system, uh, which plays a role in pain, memory, and mood. They found a second gene, which had previously been thought to be sort of, uh, you know, a, um, they, they used to call it junk DNA, but it's just, you know, an, a non-coding part of the DNA. And uh, so they used to think that it didn't do anything in humans, uh, but with uh, Ms. Cameron, it definitely does. Uh, They have dubbed it the fa-out gene because scientists are dorks. Um, And so it actually seems to control the fa gene. And in the case of Ms. Cameron has switched it off. And so in addition to having her wounds healing and pain insensitivity, I mean, we all... (laughs) If, if we could figure out how to get this woman's powers, I would, you know, do anything. Oh, she also scored a zero in tests for anxiety and depression and notes that she reports never having panic, even in the case of a recent car accident. The findings point towards a novel pain killer discovery that could potentially offer post-surgical pain relief and also accelerate wound healing, said Dr. Devjit uh, Sivrasatva, uh, the Rigmore pain consultant who diagnosed her. We hope this could help the 330 million patients who undergo surgery globally every year. 
So yeah, that, that would be helpful. <laughs> okay. So in other genetic news, researchers have found the first ever known common genetic condition in uh, the evolution of the uh, of hominids. And so a 2 million year old species of hominid called Paranthropus robustus uh, apparently commonly suffered from severe tooth defects called pitting enamel hypoplasia. And so this is caused by the condition ameliogenesis imperfecta, which leads to many teeth covered in small circular pits, giving them the appearance of a golf ball. Now, remains of P. robustus come from several South African caves within the quote-unquote cradle of humankind. And most remains are isolated tooth and jaw fragments, but anthropologists have also come across well-preserved skulls and bones from other parts of the body. Paranthropus were characterized with extremely large back teeth with massive jaws and cheeks thought to have developed in order to eat a diet rich in tough and fibrous vegetation. Because, now, because DNA degrades past 50,000 years, uh, it's you know quite hard to diagnose genetic conditions in ancient hominid remains. So you can't just you know crack open the uh, bones, find some bone marrow, and get some DNA. You have to be able to diagnose things like uh, you know, something that would lead to pitting on teeth because, you know, here is a early hominid species. And generally, the thing that we have the most of when it comes to early hominid species is teeth. Um, that is obviously one of the easiest things to be preserved. Uh, enamel is extremely tough, and it holds up really well. And so teeth are definitely one of the uh, most common finds when it comes to early hominids and really all, you know, critters um, that have teeth. Teeth are the things that we find the most when we, when people go out uh, looking for fossils and, uh, you know, ancient remains. And so uh, because we can't find that DNA, again, we have to look for that sort of stuff. We have to look for the markers left on bones and teeth that can be shown to indicate a genetic disease was present in early remains. And so a new study by Ian Towell, who is a candidate in biological anthropology at Liverpool, at Liverpool John Moores University in England, uh, and colleagues recently published an article in the German in the Journal of Human Evolution that suggests that P. robustus would have had a one in three prevalence of ameliogenesis imperfecta, whereas today the prevalence is around one in a thousand. And so of several hundred P. robustus teeth, over half of baby molars had pitted defects, as did a quarter of the adults. Other species of the genus Paranthropus may also have been susceptible to the disease. And now this disease would have actually had a large effect on uh, these animals with impact to diet and behavior as the loss of enamel can lead to extreme tooth wear and dental cavities, which would have caused extreme pain. Now today, due to advances in dental care, the disease is mostly a cosmetic defect. 
But why did something that was such a detriment spread and continue to persist in Paranthropus? Uh, you know, that's supposed to be the opposite of, uh, you know, evolutionary uh, pressures. And so the researchers suggest that it may be because the rapid expansion of molar size in a relatively short evolutionary period caused instability in other genes. So in this case, it may have caused problems for a gene called enam, which is associated with variation in tooth properties such as enamel thickness. Paranthropus may have had a mutation that caused a knock-on effect in genes such as enam, leading to high rates of pitting defects. But of course, this wasn't the end of the road for this genus. They continued to thrive and were widespread in Africa and even survived alongside early members of Homo before eventually dying out. And so looking at genetic diseases like this in early ancestors might help us learn more about genetic diseases in general, and in this case, the cause of ameliogenesis imperfecta in humans today. Um, even though, again, luckily for most uh, people these days, it is mostly just a cosmetic defect. Uh, but, you know, no one wants their teeth to look like golf balls. Um, so, yeah. All right, so let us move on now and talk about another really amazing um, science, amazing uh, medical study. And so uh, this is a report from the journal Science Translational Medicine. And so researchers have been able to create artificial blood vessels that actually are able to integrate and become living tissue in patients who took part in the uh, trials. And so it's really exciting. Um, heart disease is definitely the uh, leading cause of death around the world. And so many cardiovascular disorders damage blood vessels. And so we need to be able to fix damaged blood vessels, but that is not an easy task. Uh, often uh, surgeons have to actually take them from other parts of the body and, uh, or they have to use synthetic substitutes and the synthetic and up until now, the synthetic substitutes haven't been very good. But it seems that this new technology promises to make blood vessel repair safer and more effective. The idea was that if blood vessels could be made in the lab, they could be used to treat patients with different vascular needs and possibly have less morbidity than current alternatives, said Heather Pritchard, Chief Operations Officer at Humacite, the North Carolina biotech company that led the research. And so right now, again, uh, doctors usually take blood vessels from patients, uh, usually from somewhere in the thigh, um, and they will then graft them into another part of the body. Uh, but, you know, you can't do that very much. Um, <laughs> and uh, synthetic grafts increase the risk of infection and other complications. And, you know, as with any kind of possible donation, uh, blood vessel grafts from other uh, patients can be uh, rejected. 
And so researchers at Humicite wanted to uh, use human vascular cells as a base to grow new blood vessels in the lab. So what they did was they harvested um, samples of muscle cells that make up blood vessels and the endothelial cells that form a lining on the inside of the vessels um, from donated cadavers. Then they seeded those cells onto a biodegradable mesh scaffold. And so once they'd grown, the scientists removed the cadaver's vascular cells, leaving a blood vessel made of proteins like collagen that surrounded and supported the tissue's structure. The removal of the cells is important so that the vessels can be manufactured in large batches and stored on the shelf in operating rooms for implantation into any patient, Pritchard explained. And so the new vessels have been dubbed human acellular vessels or HAVs, and they are currently around 15 inches long with a quarter inch diameter. The structure and strength of the HAVs mimics human arteries and veins. And so right now they are in clinical trials uh, for patients with uh, who are doing hemodialysis uh, because they have end-stage kidney failure. And so in the new study, researchers uh, examined small pieces of the HAVs that were removed from 13 patients during routine operations. They found that although the vessels do not contain any cells when they are implanted in patients, the patient's own cells had actually come into the structure and had implanted on the scaffold. The process turns the HIV in HAV into a multi-layered living tissue similar to native blood vessels, uh, again said Pritchard. And so this is very exciting um, because it shows that they are basically becoming real blood vessels. And the researchers said they even could show that the patient's own cells repaired implanted HAVs that had been damaged from dialysis needles. So that is very cool. So basically over time, they are just integrated into the patient's uh, system. And so if that can be, uh, you know, created if they can be created in a you know large scale and be able to just be sitting on a shelf in an operating room, that would be a huge, huge boon uh, to surgeons and to uh, possible recovery from such um, from you know catastrophic wounds and also catastrophic failure due to things like heart disease. Okay, so that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, Please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.